This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Adidas and the new Terex Freehiker, a shoe built to go from trail to city and back again, kind of like Maya French. My name is Maya French. I am a young entrepreneur under the age of 30 who's a trailblazer in the natural food industry. Maya is the co-founder of a post-workout drink called Koya. It's plant-based and dairy-free. But through the process of making that drink, she's been on a journey from city kid to discovering the outdoors. So I, I grew up in the south side of Chicago, which was a concrete jungle. Um, I lived in a food desert where the nearest grocery store is probably a mile or two out, definitely not walking distance. In Chicago, Maya was overweight, eating junk food, and not doing anything active. But when she found out she was lactose intolerant, she completely changed her diet and started exercising. She lost 25 pounds in a year. But you're very limited when you live in Chicago. So I was basically just going to the gym and, you know, doing activities indoors. Then after Koya got off the ground, she moved to L.A. to grow the business and discovered hiking. I learned about Griffith Park and Santa Monica Mountains and just seeing the different terrains. I really felt like that was... That was my calling, to really be outdoors and tie that into my lifestyle and brand. And also being an African-American female uh, from Chicago, you really don't see us often in the wild. When Maya started, she didn't know what she was doing in the outdoors. Now, she's a role model for people who want to feel just at home on a hike as in the city. At the very least, she can recommend a shoe that works for both. I love to go to brunch after I hike. Uh, so, you know, throwing on some jeans or keeping on my leggings and still looking pretty cool, I think that's awesome. It helps out with the streetwear style. Find out more about the free hiker at adidas.com slash Terex. That's T-E-R-R-E-X. From Outside Magazine and PRX, these are Dispatches. Stories from our writers in the field. A lot of the time here on the podcast, we're telling stories of people who went outside and something went wrong, and they're now desperately trying to get back inside. And to pull back the curtain a bit, most of the time that I'm making those stories, I'm indoors, telling stories about the outdoors. But all that changes today, because I'm going on a vacation. A rafting, trail running, mountain biking vacation. But I don't even think you'll know that I'm gone. So today, for this last episode in our four-part Nature Cure series, we're looking into what exactly happens to us when we go outside that makes us want to stay outside and go back. Why do we feel so much better, with more energy, less stress, and a better ability to handle the challenges of our everyday lives? More specifically, today we're looking at the sensation of awe, Feeling small compared to the magic and wonder of the natural world. Or feeling like we're seeing something truly special. What is that feeling? What does it do for us? Outside's Michael Roberts reported this story, which begins in a place that's mostly indoors, but sometimes kind of outdoors. The internet. Here's Mike. When I think about awe, I don't usually think of anything involving the internet. But there are a couple guys online sure seem to have captured awe, at least for themselves. The first is Jason Silva, who created a web series called Shots of Awe. Silva is best known for his National Geographic television show Brain Games. He's been compared to Timothy Leary, and he speaks with an electric energy. 
He seems to be in awe pretty much all the time. Endings. This is the rhapsodic, ecstatic, bursting forth of awe that expands our perceptual parameters. And then there's my favorite viral video superstar of all time. I'm talking about Double Rainbow Guy. In 2010, he posted a YouTube video of himself being brought to tears, and way beyond, by a pretty rad double rainbow he saw near Yosemite National Park. Double rainbow all the way across the sky. Oh my god. Oh my god. Oh god. What does this mean? I don't know if he ever figured out what it meant, but I can tell you that a whole lot of people were in awe of double rainbow guys are. His video has more than 46 million views. Also, his real name is Paul Vasquez, and he swears he wasn't high. Which makes you wonder, what exactly was going on with him? Because while there's a lot of research showing that being in nature makes us happy, the scientific study of awe in nature, or just awe in general, is limited. It's also relatively new. Efforts to investigate the function and impact of awe began less than 20 years ago. Psychologist Dacher Keltner at the University of California, Berkeley, was behind those early studies, and he remains a leading figure in research on awe and other emotions. Early on, he and another scientist, Jonathan Haidt, laid out an operational definition of awe. Putting it in simpler terms, Keltner wrote that it's the feeling of being in the presence of something vast that transcends your understanding of the world. Since then, Keltner's designed a number of projects around awe. He founded UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, which has attracted psychology PhD candidates who developed their own studies. One of them, published last year in the journal Emotion, was the first ever investigation of how being in nature might elicit awe in a way that reduces stress and improves our well-being. Perhaps the most surprising aspect of the project was that its origins were on the battlefields of Iraq, in the experience of a soldier named Stacy Bear. My experience was probably, I don't know, somewhere in the middle percentiles of what I saw in terms of carnage. I wasn't infantry, I was civil affairs at the time. I got shot at, I got blown up. Stacy had grown up in a military family. His uncle, grandfather, and great aunt had served. He was in the ROTC in college at the University of Mississippi, where he studied military history. After graduating, he enlisted in the army. He served tours in Angola and the former Soviet state of Georgia. Then in 2005, he went to Iraq. We witnessed some horrific things. For years, I used to wake up thinking a dog was eating my neck out because I saw, on one of my very first days out, I saw um, two really happy-looking dogs, and they were eating something. And as we approached, you know, moved through the area, uh, the wind blew, and some trash uncovered that the dogs were eating out a bloated corpse of a man, right, who had been shot and left under, um, had been killed, and, and then the dogs, you know, were happy because they were getting a big meal. After his time in Iraq, Stacy did some traveling, and then began what was supposed to be a normal civilian life. I came home, and my thought was that I'd spend a few months traveling and visiting friends and partying, and then I'd go to graduate school, and I would punch my ticket to the upper middle class, and I'd be an urban designer and architect and wear cool glasses and live in an exposed brick apartment on the East Coast. It didn't work out that way. He got his master's degree in urban design, but then the recession hit. There weren't many jobs. 
firms weren't too excited about hiring a guy who had spent the last seven years in war zones. And so I ended up in Boulder, Colorado, and throughout that time, I developed a fairly significant cocaine habit, uh, become an alcoholic, and was really, I mean, pun intended, was at the end of my rope, and wanted to commit suicide. Yes, that's the technical term, but really I just wanted to disappear, right? I just wanted to be gone. He reached out to a friend from the Army named Chuck, who had helped him get through some difficult times in Iraq. Chuck lived nearby, in Colorado Springs, and had spent a long time in charge of the Special Forces Mountaineering School. And he more or less told me, you know, make a decision. He's like, you got to make a decision on what you want to do. Do something about it. Join the Army, go back in, or figure out what you want to do. And uh, I was like, well, what, can, what, what could I do? And he's like, well, you got to do something. And he suggested that I come climb with him. Stacy wasn't new to the outdoors. He'd been a Boy Scout. And at one point during his time with the Army, he took a surf trip to South Africa. But he hadn't done any climbing. Part of the reason? In case he can't tell by his voice, Stacy's a big guy. Six foot seven and not at all lanky. But Chuck was also a big guy, which made things easier. So they went to the Flatirons, a classic rock climbing destination in Boulder. And one of the great things about climbing is that there's moments of extreme terror, especially for the new climber, and that first flat iron is a very slabby climb, right? So it's, um, you, you look back on it now, and it's, it, people are like, oh, it's a great beginning climb. And one of the reasons I think it's such a great beginning climb is because you have to do these, you know, slab moves, right? Where you're not holding on to anything. You're just smashing your hands into the rock, and you're smearing your feet, and you're figuring out how to move up. My sense of awe at that moment was really just sucked into the rock, right? And it was just about trying to get up. And I think I also had this experience where, looking back on it now, I realized, obviously, I didn't want to die that much because I kept yelling for Chuck to take the rope, right? I thought I was going to fall. Take, 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 falling. I wasn't falling, right? I was just nervous. I was scared. I was frightened. And... Chuck led every pitch, and we went up, and we went up, and we went up, and then you're on this ridge line, and it's beautiful, and you can, you know, you are on the front range, which is a magical place, and you can see out onto the, you know, the prairie rolling up into the the Rocky Mountains. You can see out into the Rocky Mountains, so it's this incredible spot, and it's just this magical moment of <laughs> I get to be here, and uh, then we had to do the rappel down. Um, and that was when, at that moment, I think all those, all those moments of awe, all those moments of intense uh, focus cracked open, or really blew open, a door to trauma. And all the trauma came flooding through at that moment. And uh, I can now look back on that and realize that was a somatic experience. My body was trembling, I was shaking, and I was crying like a small child. When Stacy got down, his first thought was, that was so good for me. His second thought was, how can we do this for other veterans? That set him on a years-long journey that began with him working at a group called Veterans Green Jobs, then co-founding Veterans Expeditions, and eventually ending up with the Sierra Club, which was interested in collecting science that supported the idea that outdoor programs should be treated as legitimate medical interventions for people suffering from stress, depression, and PTSD. After holding a conference at the University of Utah, the club realized that the empirical studies they were after didn't exist. 
they decided their best way forward was to fund a research project. They reached out to scientists and health practitioners working in the nature space and invited them to a gathering at a hotel in San Francisco in the fall of 2013. We sit down and we start this meeting and we're laying out, look, we want to figure out the health benefits of time outdoors. And everybody in this room knows it's a good thing. And there's uh, acres of literature, scientific, uh, popular literature, sacred texts that say time outdoors is a good thing. But how do we get policy to really build around the power of the outdoors? How do we use this as a vehicle to help people understand why conservation is important? And really, how do we do this to, to help save our communities, right? I mean, our communities are fracturing and people are screaming and struggling and suicide and drug use. And what are we going to do here? And um, we kind of get done with our spiel, and there's a bit of a tussle outside the room we're in uh, as this individual is explaining that he is there for this research meeting. And I think the the security guard's like, no, you're, you're not here for this important research meeting. And, like, Dacker Keltner comes, like, kind of, you know, rumbling in, right? And he looks like a surfer dude who's been, you know, living down on the beach for the last couple of days. And I mean, you know, kind of sandy, dirty blonde hair. He's, he's like the, the ultimate disheveled professor. He fits the stereotype and he kind of wanders in and starts talking. And at the end of it, everyone, you know, we talk for a couple hours and a lot of interesting stuff, tons of notes. And we're like, well, who wants to help us develop this research project? Who wants to do it? And everyone's kind of looking at us like, y you want to create a research project to convince insurance companies to fund time outdoors. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we want a prescription to the outdoors to mean that you can go into, you know, an outdoor store and get a copay for a guided experience and hiking boots. All of a sudden, kind of the air gets sucked out of the room, right? And Dacker says, I'll do it. We want to do this. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. So earlier we heard about Maya French and the Terex Free Hiker from Adidas. And if you talk to anyone about the Free Hiker, or if you put them on your feet, the first thing you're going to notice is how comfortable they are. But when you're on a path like Maya's, that has you constantly pushing your boundaries in the outdoors, comfort is actually kind of a multifaceted thing. It's not just about how your feet feel. And then the other thing I read is that you are uh, going to learn to swim, or, or are learning to swim. Yes. And I'm just curious, how's that going? Uh, it's going well. I just left Israel and uh, tried floating in a dead sea, which also helped me do a little paddling without worrying about drowning. So baby steps, baby steps with everything. Maya says that the process of learning to swim or do anything outside is about pushing just past the point where you start to feel uncomfortable and then backing off over and over again, pushing a little further each time. So some things that I've tried have been jumping in Lake Michigan uh, off of a yacht and just kind of floating there until I got too afraid to really be in deep water. Uh, another thing that I often do is paddleboard, but with um, a life jacket, of course. <laughs> so getting comfortable in deep water uh, slowly and then, of course, putting myself in a position where I can work on a technique without the fear of drowning. The free hikers aren't much help in the water. But she says what they do help with is feeling confident everywhere. So the shoes, uh, they not only provide a great style that makes me feel comfortable to wear them outside of the trails, but they also provide function. And for me, function ties into safety and it helps me 
feel confident to achieve new heights when I am out there, you know, on a hiking trail or, you know, climbing some ridiculous elevation and not worrying about, you know, am I going to slip and fall or am I going to be uncomfortable because I've fallen into water. So I think that's, you know, it's a perfect marriage of style and function. Find out more about The Free Hiker at adidas.com slash That's T-E-R-R-E-X. After that San Francisco meeting, the Sierra Club collaborated with Kelter's Greater Good Science Center on fundraising for a research project, securing an important donation from REI. They called their endeavor the Great Outdoors Lab. One of the chief designers of the approach was a Ph.D. candidate named Craig Anderson. As a kid, Anderson had had powerful experiences in the New Mexico wilderness, and he had come to UC Berkeley to study our feelings of awe in nature. But initially, he expected to design relatively simple studies, partly because the field was so new. You know, UC Berkeley's campus is, in my opinion, one of the most awe-inspiring campuses here in the U.S. There's actually been lots of studies coming out of uh, Professor Keltner's lab where for an awe manipulation, you just take students on a walk and sit them beneath uh, the replica T-Rex skeleton. Or you take them to the uh, grove of eucalyptus trees, which are the largest of that type of eucalyptus in North America. Or you take them to the top of the famous Campanile bell tower and have them look out across the Bay Area. Um, So I think I had something along those lines in mind. Um, And it was only when we got connected with the Sierra Club Outdoors that we thought a little bigger. Bigger um, turned out to be whitewater rafting. The Sierra Club already had programs that took military veterans and underserved youth rafting, which gave the scientists the building blocks of a study. They assessed 52 teenagers and 72 vets who did river trips in Northern California. To the measure of their experience of awe and its impact on their overall well-being, Anderson and his colleagues took the kind of multi-pronged approach that defines a lot of research on emotions. First, they just asked the participants what they were feeling. The rafters wrote daily diaries, recording their emotions. Also, before the trip, and then again a week after, they filled out detailed assessments measuring things like stress, how well they slept, and their sense of social connection. Of course, because our ability, or our willingness, to accurately report our health is... But let's call it less than perfect. The researchers also needed other tools. We got uh, GoPro cameras, and we suction cup mounted them to the front of the raft, uh, looking back at the people in the raft, um, and basically loaded them up with the biggest memory card and and the biggest battery extender that we could, uh, and turned them on at the beginning of the trip and just let them run throughout the day. Scientists collected hundreds of hours of footage, then did what's called behavioral coding, using our existing understanding of how people typically expressed emotions in their face and body language and voice to judge the experience of the rafters. Finally, they collected saliva samples to measure the levels of the hormone cortisol, a key indicator of stress and fear. Looking at the initial results, the biggest change they saw was in PTSD symptoms, which were reduced by an average of 30%. This was both for the veterans and the teenagers, which showed alarmingly high rates of PTSD in their pre-trip evaluations. 
Even more compelling finding, however, came when the researchers correlated the daily journals and video recordings to see how the emotions participants experienced on the water impacted their post-trip assessments. And when we looked at those emotions, kind of put them into our regression models, uh, awe was the only emotion that we measured uh, that significantly predicted whether or not people's well-being would improve at that follow-up one week later. Previous studies had treated emotions as an outcome of experiences in nature. We do something outside and it makes us happy, or sad, or scared. But Anderson looked at our feelings during the experience and then measured their longer-term impact. What he found was that awe, above all other emotions, was by far the greatest predictor of improved well-being. So let's all go rafting, right? Not necessarily. Anderson says the rafters didn't experience a lot of awe in the middle of rapids. That's when they felt excitement, fear, or just laughed like crazy people. Instead, it seemed to come during the long, calm stretches of water. There wasn't much to do but relax and look at the nature that was all around them. The good news here is that this means it might be easier than we think to experience awe in our everyday lives in a way that makes us healthier and happier. Which is exactly what Anderson concluded in another Link study. This time, the research was focused on UC Berkeley undergraduate students who completed surveys every day over a two-week period and also took an in-depth measurement of their well-being before and after the study. The results showed very clearly that simple nature outings like walking through a woodsy part of campus led to greater well-being. But what about nature made this happen? Was it an experience of awe? Or maybe just sunshine? Or maybe being away from all those other stressed-out students? To understand the role awe played, Anderson used what psychologists call a mediational model. That's kind of an approach that we use um, to kind of test how things have effects on other things. So... Um, so, for example, we tested on days that people experience nature, um, does the increased awe in part explain the effect of nature on well-being? And so if you kind of um, partial out that variance of awe, um, what we see is that the effect uh, of nature on well-being um, goes down or completely goes away. Meaning, if you don't experience any awe, then your nature experience might not have a lasting positive impact on your well-being. Once again, just like in the rafting study, awe is the linchpin emotion. Nature without awe just doesn't always give us the same lift. As Stacy Baer points out, that kind of nuanced understanding of how we benefit from being outdoors is crucial when you're designing programs to heal people. I think we've got to look at this in the same way that um, a biotech firm launches its own lab and startup with a very specific way uh, of doing things and looking for a cure for some specific issue. And I think we need to, uh, my next step is to figure out how to create that similar approach, right? Um, and I think for a lot of people, and one of the things that we got a lot of pushback on right away and still get pushback on is, why are you trying to eliminate the mystery of the outdoors? Why are you trying to define what we already know to be true and what i have said to that and would continue to say that is we're, we're not we just want to understand what the mystery and beauty and and that experience does to the body and does to the mind so that we can then create and support 
significant policy shifts that allow for more people to get out there. Stacy was particularly encouraged that the research suggested that we don't actually need a mountaintop experience or a rafting trip to get the kind of awe in nature experience that's so good for us. That we can find those moments of awe anywhere. You don't have to be up on the first flat irons. You can find awe in Wichita, Kansas. You can find awe in Boulder, Colorado. You can find awe in Boston, Massachusetts. And I think in the outdoor industry at times, we have conflated adventure, and this is one of the challenges with Instagram, has to be this like huge mountain or this Red Bull experience. And, and that might not actually be awe. He's right. But still, if I really really need an off fix, I don't think I'll be heading to Wichita or a college campus or even the Flatirons. No, I'm going to head to Yosemite. Oh, God, it's so bright. Oh, my God, it's so bright and vivid. This episode was produced by Michael Roberts and edited by Robbie Carver. It was brought to you by Adidas and the all-new Terex Freehiker. More at Terex.com. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Integrated Media and PRX. We'll be back after a quick vacation.